From KIOS in Omaha and Exorbin Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I have a new conversation with Kara Eastman, congressional candidate running to represent Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District in the United States House of Representatives. I mean, and actually a lot of these things used to be Republican core values, right? Like lowering the debt, uh, family values, protecting the environment, uh, things that, that now the Republicans like to frame as radical. It's not so radical to be able to just work a job and then come home and feed your family. Eastman discusses life during the pandemic and how that's changed her campaign, as well as crunch time as we get closer to Election Day and the way that that impacts the language of political campaigns. Stick around for that right here on Riverside Chats after this quick break. And welcome to Riverside Chats. I am Tom Noblock. And you may or may not have noticed, but we are rapidly approaching Election Day. Mail-in ballots get mailed out the week that this airs, so the very end of September. So if you've requested a mail-in ballot in Nebraska, you will probably be getting your ballot very soon, which means that you can vote very, very soon. Now, that's both one of the foundational elements of our entire country, And also, when we get closer to Election Day, we sort of enter this phase where the political discourse gets much more persistent, uh, much more annoying in a lot of ways. I don't know about you, but I'm currently getting inundated with a lot of pieces of mail that are about one step away from somebody drawing devil horns on their opponent and drawing a pitchfork in their hand and saying, you wouldn't vote for the devil, would you? Um, yeah, and that's, you know, if you listen to this show regularly, you know, that's not really my style of trying to talk about complicated things. And certainly the state of politics, the very intentional world that has been built up around us, uh, I, I think deserves more nuance than the, the devil pitchfork in uh, horns and tail, you know, tends to, tends to have uh, to offer. So this show is my way of, it's, it's meant to be an antidote to the discourse that's around us by portraying the politicians and the people who want to represent you both in the state and the federal government as human beings, because just like issues are complicated, so are the people. And talking to somebody in depth for an hour is a great way for me to try to get to know them and then to share what I've learned with you. So Because we are in election season, this show is going to be a little bit more politically focused than usual, at least more consistently. Um, It's going to look like some new conversations with people who are running, as well as some reruns with people who I talked to earlier in the year. So expect a rerun of my conversation with Don Bacon from the spring, my conversation with Kate Bowles from this summer, and I was lucky enough to get to talk to Kara Eastman for a third time. This is the third hour long conversation that I've had with her, and that is what I have for you today. So this conversation that you're about to hear was recorded in mid-September, which means it is very close to the election, and the issues that developed from the spring into the fall are touched upon with a little bit more specificity than some of the reruns are able to capture. So I'm very excited to share this conversation with you. This is my conversation, my latest conversation with Kara Eastman, who is running to represent Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District in the House of Representatives. There's a confusing element, I feel like, to the 
campaigns that are going on right now. Like, for example, I get mail every day that makes it seem like Bernie Sanders is running for president with AOC and they're about to win the presidency. And then I go on Twitter and I see Don Bacon assuring everybody that the ACA needs protection and that if they like their coverage, they can keep it, which is, you know, a quote basically from President Obama and not one Republicans seem to like until about, I don't know, two months ago. So, I mean, what what's going on right now? It's <laughs> a great question. What is going on in our district is that the Republican Party as an institution is afraid of losing this congressional seat because they see that I'm ahead in the polls. They know that Joe Biden is ahead and they're worried about losing this election. Well, so, I mean, is it unusual? Is it unprecedented? The The messaging seems, I mean, I, I guess one of them was, it almost seems like there's imaginary candidates happening right now. Like the, the fact that Bernie Sanders and AOC are on everything that goes out does seem to be at odds with the ideology of Joe Biden. And you're getting drawn into that. You're getting called comrade. And so, I mean, it feels like we've gotten pretty far away from talking about what's actually being proposed by either you or Don Bacon at this point. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and not from us. I mean, we've, we've always been, I, I have an issue section on my website. Don Bacon does not. The Republican Party at their convention had no platform. The Democrats did. So, um, and, 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 you know, look, I, I'm an independent voice, wasn't recruited by somebody to run for this position. And, um, and while I'm a lifelong Democrat, I definitely see that, you know, there's, there's problems with both parties. So, but, but that's just, those are just the facts. And instead of running on issues, instead of running on facts, Don Bacon is skewing those to confuse voters. And, and, and the idea of comparing a candidate to other ones who, who poll, you know, differently or where, I mean, that's nothing new. Last time the pictures were of me with Nancy Pelosi. This time they're with me and AOC. Next time it'll be somebody else. And and that's unfortunately, I, it's, it's actually unfortunate that that's the state of American politics right now. Well, let's talk about the ACA because I find it interesting that after, I don't know, almost a decade of Republicans running very much on we have to repeal the ACA, uh, you know, not, not to even talk about everybody, but to zero in specifically on Don Bacon, who now does purport, I mean, the way that he portrays himself is that he's this proponent of keeping the ACA and how great it is and that you want to, you know, abolish the ACA, which is, I think, an odd framing and a misleading framing of what's been proposed. It's a total lie. He just voted to against expanding the ACA. He voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act. He was notorious for saying that he would not just vote yes, but hell yes, to repeal the Affordable Care Act. In the middle of this pandemic, he voted to take away health care, not uh, voted against protections for pre-existing conditions, voted against lowering prescription costs. There is nothing in my platform that talks about taking health care away from anybody. Well, I mean, so you don't think he's had a change of heart, in other words? No, he has not had a change of heart. He sees the polling that now Americans like their health care coverage, although premiums are still too high. Co-pays are still too high. Deductibles are still too high. But people like having health care. Right. Well, that makes sense. And he sees that. And so he has not had a change of heart when just it was just a month or so ago that he voted against the Affordable Care Act. What was the specifics of that vote? 
So, um, so this was a vote in the House, again, to expand the Affordable Care Act and uh, it, to, because of the pandemic and he voted against it. And, and that means against all the things that I laid out before. And, and so to then tell people that you want to protect the Affordable Care Act is completely disingenuous. So let's talk about, I mean, the, what you would like to see happen with healthcare has been a proposal or a call for Medicare for all. So you've probably explained this not only to a bunch of other people, you've probably explained it to me in our previous conversations as well, but can you just walk through, I mean, the thing everyone says is how do we pay for it? What's it going to do to taxes or the deficit or anything like that? I know Bernie Sanders had released, I think it was like six different ways to find money to do it. What is your plan for trying to get the logistics of Medicare for all if it were to pass? Well, so I want to be clear about this. I would have supported the bill to expand the ACA. The reason that I believe in expanding health care is and, and the particular bill. So the, the problem with the words Medicare for all is that they mean different things to different people. To some people, it means expansion of health care. To other people, it's single payer, universal health care. To others, it's a bill. It's a specific bill. There is a bill in Congress, H.R. 1384. It's called the Medicare for All Act. And the reason that I like that particular bill is that it has been studied and there's science that shows that it would reduce the cost of, for, of about $2 trillion over the next decade. When we are spending 18% of GDP on healthcare and projected to spend 24% of GDP on healthcare over the next decade, and our outcomes are so poor. I mean, we have, you know, compared to other countries, we are, you know, Americans are sicker. We have more infant mortality. We have more childhood obesity. Like our outcomes, you know, higher rates of diabetes, higher rates of heart attacks. And our outcomes are significantly poorer for the amount of money that we're spending. And this is outrageous. We also have issues with prescriptions being out of control. And President Trump ran on lowering prescriptions. He said he was going to change the law so that the federal government could negotiate healthcare or uh, prescription prices. And that never happened. He recently feigned an executive order to lower prescription costs, but it didn't come to fruition. This is something that Congress needs to take action on. So, and, and frankly, as, as most people have heard, I'm running for Congress because of my mother's own issues. I don't want anybody to have to go through what my mom went through, where, you, where you're prescribed a pill that you can't afford to take. I talked to a family the other day in Omaha. They're a couple spending $11,000 a month on prescriptions for their child. Imagine that cost. That is so crazy. $100,000 a year, more than that to spend on medications when we know that in other countries you pay significantly less, when we know that some, you know, some place, there's some um, insurance companies that would cover this. We, what, what I hear from people constantly is that they're fighting with their insurance companies to lower their bills. I hear this from doctors who are fighting with insurance companies to be able to actually practice medicine and have the freedom to practice medicine. I hear from people who are frustrated that we don't right now have choice when it comes to our provider. You have your whole in-network, out-of-network thing, and then you end up going to the emergency room and that hospital might be in your network, but the provider isn't, and then you get hit with a surprise bill. 
and and you get that thing that says it's, this is not a bill and it's 15 pages what is it if it's not a bill why am i getting this stack of papers our healthcare system is so broken and the people who are winning the people who are profiting are not ordinary americans they are large insurance companies large pharmaceutical companies who fund politicians to vote against laws that would actually help the majority of Americans. And a time right now where we have this pandemic and so many Americans have lost their jobs and therefore lost their healthcare, we also need to start looking at decoupling healthcare from employment because it doesn't work. And it costs businesses a lot of money. Small businesses are drowning because they're either trying to pay medical you know, health insurance for their employees, or they're simply unable to, and this leaves so many people without health care. So the, I've heard from a lot of people who seem to agree in theory, and I, I think even Don Bacon's primary argument is, I don't know how we afford it. He doesn't necessarily argue that Medicare for all would be a bad idea, I guess. Maybe he does to some extent because he points to other countries where there's been problems, but what's the easiest explanation for how to explain how is it affordable? We, we all, we're, look at what we're paying right now. If if, the, if if that particular bill saves two trillion over the next decade, where's the question, right? Like, look at what we're spending in healthcare costs right now. Look at what the an average American is spending between six and twelve thousand dollars a year on healthcare, and that's with insurance. So that's premiums, copays, out of pocket costs, medicines. Like this is crazy expensive. And if we have something in front of us that would be more efficient, more effective, and actually provide coverage to everybody, provide healthcare for everybody, and would save money, I don't really get the question of how do we pay for it. That saves money. That's how we pay for it. I guess the, the question is kind of like what what saving the two trillion. How does that work? Like where where does that how, like what are what's like the simplest? I don't know. Medicare for all for dummies kind of explanation here. Well, and this is healthcare for dummies, right? Because we, because when it comes to healthcare, it's a, despite what the president says, this is a pretty complex issue. Unions actually get this better than anybody because they understand the power of collective bargaining. They understand the power of having everybody in the pool. When you have everyone in the pool, there's cost savings and efficiencies. We know that administrative waste in healthcare, in health insurance is part of the problem. Um, and, and that it would eliminate that by having everybody in the pool. It eliminates the waste. Um, we know that there are these excise taxes on medical equipment that could be you know, alleviated. We know that giving the federal government the power to negotiate prices by having everybody in the pool would lower costs. So there's so many efficiencies that are created when everybody's in the pool. And, and I think the other thing that's important to point out is people talk about, you know, well, this eliminates private health insurance. It actually doesn't. And the insurance companies know this. They're preparing for it and they're excited to become boutique industries because this is, this is medically necessary, right? Like where when somebody has a heart attack and has to have surgery, they're not hit with a surprise bill afterwards. But if you're choosing to have cosmetic surgery for something, that's where the insurance company steps in. And, and they know that they're going to make more money this way. And frankly, you know, another question I get asked a lot about is like, well, how does this impact in, you know, insurance employees? Omaha is an insurance town. First of all, I would never do anything in Congress that would put people out of work. Like that's, you know, that's it completely antithetical to why I'm running and what I'm running on. But insurance companies are already laying people off due to automation. 
And so we need to look at these things rationally, start having like real conversations about healthcare and to start electing people who actually want to roll up the her sleeves and, and work on this issue without just, you know, saying that you, without lying, without just, like, this is hard work, but we can do this together. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Kara Eastman, who is running to represent Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District in the House of Representatives. She's challenging our current incumbent, Republican Don Bacon. A a disparity that I'm seeing in the Don Bacon campaign right now, Don Bacon champion of the ACA, the new, you know, the new Don Bacon here is my understanding is the Trump administration is currently in a lawsuit to try to undo the ACA. So I mean, I guess... I, I, is there is there an explanation for how he's uh how he's going to ensure that people can keep their insurance if they like it while not really being a vote or a, you know a vocal sort of uh not not having a vocal outcry at the lawsuit that the president that he's supporting uh, is currently waging? I hope you ask him that because <laughs> I I don't have an answer. Well, that that actually is kind of a good bridge. So uh, right after the primary, I had invited you and I invited Don Bacon to come back on this show. Because I think both of you sort of spoken to some, you know, some issues you maybe had with the the standard debate format, which is more of, you know, kind of like, I think Obama even called debates learning your lines as opposed to having a conversation. And so, you know, there, there's, you know, some value to it. But I thought it'd be interesting to see what if you have two people who are running against each other actually talk to each other as human beings in a way that was maybe lightly moderated. But, you know, ultimately, it's a conversation rather than a structured debate. Uh, and I believe your team had responded and said they'd do it within minutes. And I still am waiting on a response from Bacon's team. And that sort of led to this trend where after Bacon did come on in the spring, I've had a lot of trouble getting Republican incumbents to come on this show. And I'm curious, what do you, what do you make of that? Because I I don't really think I'm that scary. Well, even if you were, somebody who is a sitting representative for this district should not be afraid of any question. And it leads me to believe that they're hiding something. Well, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's not to say that this shows some huge cultural landmark, but I think, you know, an open conversation would be useful on some of these issues. And then the, my hope was that it helps us from devolving into calling people names and things. And so like, I don't know, uh, I, it's confusing to me that uh, there's not more of a push for that unless you're trying to be more sensationalistic, I guess, is the takeaway that I'm getting. Sure. Well, and and I think this speaks to part of the problems with electoral politics is that we don't have transparent, authentic leadership. We don't have people that are willing to answer hard questions. And you have somebody like my opponent who's given a playbook from the Republican Party and uses those speaking points. This is somebody who pledged that he wouldn't disagree with the president of the United States. I, I think if you gathered a room of people and said, you know, if you gathered a room of people who are married and said, would you never, would you pledge to never disagree with your partner? <laughs> I don't think people would, would go along with that. I mean, that is crazy. And so we, we need people who are going to, I mean, look, we're never going to agree on everything. That's not possible. But the, but the people in the Nebraska second, the, the voters here, the residents here deserve somebody who's going to be willing to listen to their concerns, who's going to be willing to answer questions. When when I take a vote in Congress, I intend to let people know why I took that vote and my rationale for it. And there are going to be a lot of people who don't agree 100% with what I'm doing. That's <laughs> That happens in my campaign. And yet we 
always engage people. And we're, I, I, I message on Twitter and say, direct message me your phone number and I will call you if you wanna have a conversation. I get Republicans, independents saying, I doubt she would ever call me because I don't agree with some of her stuff. And I call them. We need that. We, and and that's, that's really what this is, right? This is doing politics differently and actually bringing electoral po politics back to the people. We are supposed to be elected to represent you, to work for you, not to work for lobbyists, not to work for large corporations. And, and that's one of the reasons why I'm running, because we need a different system. Well, I think that's interesting, too, because, I mean, Joe Biden obviously does not agree with some of the people in, their, or in the Democratic Party. So, I mean, you have even though they're on all the flyers I get in the mail every day, you don't often see AOC, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden all having the exact same message for what the best policy is on everything. Right. Uh, and even so, like in your case, I guess the question I would have is there is a discussion about what to do that maybe Joe Biden is a little bit more moderate than some wings of the party. So, I mean, you're not going to agree necessarily. He maybe isn't the perfect person for exactly how you would run things because you're not him. So, I mean, what what's the role of some of the more progressive people in the party under a potential President Biden? Well, I think that's the great thing about the Democratic Party right now is we are building a coalition and uh, Joe, I was the second candidate in the country that Joe Biden endorsed this past weekend. So proud to have that endorsement. But no, of course we don't agree on everything. But also, I'm not elected by Joe Biden. I'm not elected by the Democratic Party. And I intend to be elected by the voters of the Nebraska Second and will be beholden to them. So if, if, you, if people are looking for a truly independent voice in Congress, somebody's going to make good decisions that are in the best interest of this district and not in the best interest of a party, then I am that person. And I'm proud to be that. That's who I've always been. But I think that we have a real opportunity right now um, to, to come together and, and when we don't agree on everything to actually have those conversations. And I think from what I've seen of Joe Biden, he's open and willing to have those conversations. And that doesn't mean that he's going to cave to anything, you know, to everything too. I mean, I think, but, but we need to have these conversations. Some of them are very difficult conversations to have. And, but Americans deserve transparency. They deserve honesty. And, and we don't have that right now in the White House. And we don't have that in the second district. Yeah. And I mean, something I note is when we get sort of this, we get these talking points against talking point. We don't talk about, you know, some of the things that are right in front of us. And it doesn't seem like under, you know, on a national scale, we don't do enough actually talking about issues in general. And so, I mean, part of that is, you know, you've got one party that didn't even, I don't think, release a platform for their convention. And so, I mean, it's just, there's not like a plurality of opinions that are clashing with each other to try to figure out what's going to work the best or talking through and revising ideas, right, on one, you know, on the right side for the most part. Uh, one of the things I think that that's especially bad for, and it's something that comes up every time there's a presidential debate for the most part, is... Uh, you know, you look at the world around us, you look at whether it's wildfires, you look at what's going on with ice caps melting, and we sort of, our, our discourse about the environment is often, you know, uh, the Green New Deal, and that's pretty much the only way we're going to talk about it. We're not going to really confront a lot of the ideas. We're not going to talk about it that seriously. However, I mean, it does seem to be something that voters more and more are seeing you know, the, the future of the environment is a, a huge priority and it's easy to see why. So, I mean, 
what I mean, what policies do you see going forward that would be helpful for the environment? Uh, and then how do you answer some of those voters where that's maybe one of their number one concerns? Yeah, I mean, there we this is this is an issue where we don't have time for politicians to come around on the science, right? We have the science in front of us. We know that climate change is real. And, and look at what's happening in our country right now between the fires on the West Coast and, uh, you know, hurricanes on the East and flooding that's happened in Nebraska. I mean, we, we, we need to take action immediately. And there are a number of ways to do that. In Nebraska in particular, you know, we need to invest in renewable energy. We need to be leaders in wind and solar, and we could be. But for the, the bureaucratic leadership that we have right now that's preventing us from moving forward. But I think to your point of, you know, I wanted to read these to you because I think that they're, it's really interesting when we talk about kind of the differences that we see and the way that the parties divide us and the way that, the, frankly, the mainstream media does too. Listen to some of these statistics, right? Nine out of 10 Americans support government action to lower prescriptions. Eight out of 10 of Americans approve paid maternity leave. Eight out of 10 support a path to citizenship for undocumented individuals. Eight out of 10 um, registered voters support higher taxes for the wealthiest Americans. Seven out of 10 say social security benefits should not be reduced. Seven out of 10 support single payer healthcare. Seven out of 10 favor a wealth tax. Six out of 10 want to increase the federal minimum wage. And seven out of 10 support making two-year colleges tuition free. I mean, these are things that the majority of Americans agree on. And yet they're framed in in such extreme ways when these are these are popular opinions. Uh, so it's it's just it's interesting, where I think that we we agree on so much more than we disagree on. But there's these kind of wedge issues and this divisiveness that's being perpetuated. And right now, it is starting with the highest level of leadership at this country that is doing this to us. Do you see a path out of wedge issues? I do. I think when we talk to voters about values and about the things they care about and and I understand, I understand why people would be afraid of a change in our healthcare system. I understand why um, they're afraid of, of some of these these major wedge issues that we talk about. I mean, if you if you feel like um, your community is falling apart, then it's scary. If you feel like you're not going to be safe in your neighborhood, that's scary to people. I get that. But when we actually start talking about the things that we all care about, the way that we take care of our neighbors here in Nebraska that maybe in other states people don't get, but the way that we care about our kids and want them to have clean air and water and, and, and want them not to have to pick up this mess of a, of a debt that we've created in this country. I mean, these are things that we all pretty much agree on. And I find that there's so much common ground. And this is why we also need to go out and, and why it's so important for somebody running for office to actually talk to people, even when we don't agree on everything. I'm talking today with Kara Eastman, who is currently running to represent Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District in the House of Representatives. This is our third conversation. You can find the previous two if you're interested on whatever podcast app you prefer. We'll be back after this quick break with the rest of the conversation right here on Riverside Chats. 
If you're a fan of Riverside Chats and want to see the show not only continue but expand in new spin-off shows including a film club, a book club, and a news roundup, please consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash riversidechats. For as low as just $1 a month, you get access to exclusive audio as well as our full backlog of episodes. Our most recent 50 are always free. Older than that goes behind the paywall. So you get that plus exclusive content over at patreon.com slash riversidechats. Please consider becoming a patron today. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I am talking today with Carr Eastman, who is running to represent Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District in the House of Representatives. This makes her a challenger to incumbent Don Bacon, who I talked to this spring, and we'll be replaying my conversation with Don Bacon later in October as we get closer to Election Day. Here is the rest of my conversation with his challenger, Carr Eastman. So you've got a background in helping a lot of people and trying to, you know, reach to a lot of diverse sort of groups. I mean, I know you specifically helped with lead poisoning in your past, right? So, I mean, what were some of the skills or lessons that you were learning that made, you know, that gave you certain skills that would be applicable in Congress? Yeah, I think so many. I mean, one of the ways that you actually get stuff done in the community is by bringing people together who represent that community. And so we did that when we were addressing lead poisoning in North Omaha and brought, brought community-based organizations together, brought elected officials, brought business leaders together and said, we're going we're gonna to tackle lead poisoning in, in zip code 68111 because that is where we continue to have the highest numbers of children who are impacted by lead in the same homes over and over again in, you know, with, 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 and we need community input to do that. I've, I've seen where government programs kind of bulldoze in and try to get stuff done because they have money to throw at a problem, but they don't actually create an inclusive community around it. They bring in consultants or outsiders to do that. Like I understand the importance of having the community buy-in in order to move forward. I, you know, that's how I've always run my nonprofit. When, when we were you know, doing outreach in the South Sudanese community, we hired people who were from South Sudan to do that. It's incredibly important. And, and it's not just for show, it's, it's, it's actually how you become an effective organization. I've also had the experience of working with Republican leaders in Nebraska to effectuate change when it came to creating green, safe, healthy housing for kids. I worked with the Lieutenant Governor. I worked with Senator Mike Johans. He was the only Republican in the Senate who signed on as a co-sponsor to the Healthy Housing Council Act. And across the country, national healthy housing organizations were frustrated because they couldn't get Republicans to sign on. Well, because of my work and because of his representation on my board of directors, we were able to get him to sign on to that bill. That's how leaders work, right? You, you work with people even when you don't agree politically, but because it's what's in the best interest of your community. And that, that's exactly what I intend to do. I mean, I, when I win, I will, you know, it's possible that there will be a, you know, the federal delegation of Nebraska will continue to look Republican. I will be the lone Democrat. Um, Perhaps Kate Bowles will win, and, and then it will, that will change. But, uh, but, but that's that's an opportunity in my mind to work with Republicans to get stuff done directly for this district and for our state. Because actually, what's what what's happening around the country is that, and I, I've saw, seen this from the beginning of my work here, and also since I've been running for public office, is that Nebraska gets left behind a lot. 
Well, imagine a scenario where we flip the presidency, we flip the Senate, we expand the House majority. And if we have an entirely Republican federal delegation, Nebraska is going to get screwed uh, by <laughs> all these Democrats. We are going to need somebody to stand up and fight for Nebraska. And that's what I'm going to do. So what, I mean, what were some of your strategies then? So when you're looking for a Republican to sign on and it's a politicized issue for some reason, uh, I mean, how do you, how do you go about that? What's the, what's the successful route there? Data. We always have data that we bring and show the potential for return on investment. We show that this isn't a political issue where you've got kids from all socioeconomic levels, from all races, from all across the community that are being impacted by this issue. And we also show solutions. And so I think that's the other part of this is like, I am used to solving problems. That's what I do. That's what I was trained to do as a social worker. And that's what I've done in my entire 20 year career in mission-based organizations. And so I think when you present solutions, when you present a cost estimate, when you show return on investment, um, it's it's pretty easy to get buy-in from people. I wish the federal government, and I'd like the federal government to operate more like that, where we're showing return on investment to our funders, the taxpayers of this country. So uh, as far as, you know, getting, getting elected in, in the middle of a pandemic, we don't necessarily know where things are going to be in January, but I mean, what would be some proposals you'd have to attack the current medical, you know, crisis that we're in? Well, for anybody running for Congress right now, and that's an incumbent or a challenger, the focus has to be getting people back to work and back to work safely. And it's, it's scary when we see that projections show spikes in Nebraska going up, rates going up, and the governor is making this decision to uh, you know, release the restrictions that we have and, and frankly, those are restrictions in place to protect human health, to protect human lives. And they're, they're, I understand that they are, this is a hardship for businesses, but so is losing the life of an employee. So is losing the life of a customer who came in. And so there, there are ways to do this effectively and efficiently, but we, that's going to be the priority. And, and I just saw that, I haven't read it yet, but I just saw that Joe Biden released a plan for how we deal with the pandemic once he's elected. And, and I, I think it will be a relief to so many people to see that we have good leadership on this, that we don't have somebody in there who says that they knew that this was a huge problem, but undermined it. And that we don't have somebody that's presenting so much misinformation when we look at, at even some of the, the rallies that the president is holding right now, these indoor rallies and people are wearing masks for show, but then you pan to the crowd and people aren't wearing masks and they're right up against each other. Many of the people in that room are going to die. And I can't believe that anybody running for office would ever jeopardize the lives of their supporters or voters. It's, you know, it's, it's such a difficult time, I feel like, for everybody to try to figure this out. And you're running a, a campaign that's now online. And I know we, we talked, I think, in April when that was just starting. So, I mean, how has campaigning gone in the ensuing months? It's been, it's been challenging and interesting. We've learned a lot. I have an amazing team. You know my field director, Fatima. She has done a phenomenal job of really just reconfiguring this campaign to operate in a way that is safe and keeps people safe and healthy and while we're and and yet we're still reaching out to so many people in the district 
making sure that they know about me, about my platform, and, and also now about how to vote, how to vote safely, how to vote by mail, and, uh, and where their drop boxes are. And people have to know to sign that ballot, otherwise you don't, it doesn't count. So uh, the more you can do to get people to do that, the better. But it's, it's definitely been, been a challenge and we there but and there are some things that have i guess been interesting i mean people are a little bit more receptive to talk by phone um you know and you know we we were able to knock on the doors that we you know we had identified that we needed to so a full pass of the district before the pandemic hit and and it's hard for us we, we you know our volunteers our team we want to be door knocking that's really how we connected with people last time but now we're just trying out different different ways to connect and different ways to let people know about the campaign and investing a lot in digital investing and a lot in tv and a lot of mailing but um it's it's just a trying time when so many people are afraid and afraid of getting sick afraid of losing their job or have lost their job and afraid of how they're going to feed their families so it's a it's a really trying time for people in our district and we're trying to be there and be as much support as we can be well and so the the idea of community outreach you talked about that both when you were working in nonprofits uh trying to run a campaign it you see this phenomenon where some people when they do get elected to federal office it does seem like they sort of lose track of how to connect with a lot of the communities where they came from so i mean how do you balance that effectively uh how would you plan to continue to still be somebody who's present for the district while being in washington yeah so um you know just this last week i had 48 black leaders of omaha endorse me as a slate and one of the things we did with a lot of those leaders was create an equity plan for the district and a racial justice plan for my campaign. That is how I believe things should be done, that you get input from the people who are impacted by your, your platform, by your policies. And so I've, I've talked about creating advisory groups, having a veterans advisory group, having a faith-based advisory group, a nonprofit advisory group, because as, as somebody who ran a nonprofit, I always wish that politicians would have leaned on me more for the expertise that I had. I'm fully aware that once you're in Congress, it is it can be challenging to have that direct input to your community on and, and as regular of a basis as I've had before. And so I think that it's important to have that conduit that people can actually give you input and say, this is what's happening in our community and, and find ways that as a congressional representative, I can work to actually directly impact this district. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Kara Eastman, who is running to represent Nebraska's second congressional district in the House of Representatives, which makes her a challenger to sitting incumbent Republican Don Bacon. Here is the rest of our conversation. Another issue that I mean, I liked when you when you talked about the the statistics of what's popular, what's what's something that ma the majority supports versus what seems to be proposed by some of the parties. I mean, is the Republican Party interested in what the majority wants? Or I mean, it does seem like in the fact that we have you know something like the Electoral College where somebody can win it and not win the majority of the votes. That's probably the biggest, broadest example of minority rule definitely exists in the country and it doesn't seem to be a big priority. So, I mean, your solution seems to be that we should worry about what the majority is interested in. Right. And it, it seems there's like, there's this, there's this disconnect between a lot of our elections do ostensibly work based on the majority, but you know, what's 
popular in the polls versus what's popular in political language that's often thrown about or what you know fo- what focus groups like so we, i feel like we lose a lot in there so i mean do you feel like are you up against a party that isn't particularly interested in the views of the majority it's a good question it, it seems that way it's seems like they're interested in playing to a base that has been unfortunately uh you know has bought into some of this and and i think it's also a party that values the input of large corporations and special interests over the people and and that's part of the reason why we've seen voter apathy and and people just getting so frustrated or people leaving the parties to be to register as independents. A quarter of our district are registered independents. And, and I think there's there's a real frustration there that they're and it's on both sides. They're frustrated with corporate Democrats, they're frustrated with corporate Republicans, and they're looking for somebody who's gonna stand up and fight for them. So talk about your decision not to take money from corporate PACs, because it's one of those things that seems intuitive but is pretty rare, right? Yes, it is. And it's, it's a, it's a relatively new thing too. For me, it was, it was, and I know that was a conscious decision I made. It wasn't just like, okay, we're, you know, we'll say we're not going to take corporate back money. I've actually been offered it and turned it down. So, because to me, let's, let's look at the way that the political system is set up as, as a, first of all, the majority of people who run for Congress are tied to wealth in some way. They're, the average net worth of a sitting congressperson is a million dollars. And so pull out your Rolodex, they used to call it that, <laughs> and ask your friends and family for money so that you can run. So they each give you the maximum. That's $2,800 in a cycle, um, in a primary, another $2,800 in a general. And, and so you have all these wealthy people donating. Then there's the whole dark money side of politics where you know people can give unlimited amounts to super PACs. And so, and then what happens? You get elected to Congress and the people who come to visit you are the lobbyists for those wealthy corporations and um, who gave you PAC money in the campaign. So, so let's look at somebody like my opponent who's gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars from pharmaceutical companies and health insurance companies and made that conscious decision that he would get that money from those PACs and then votes in line with their interests. Not surprising. This is the way the system is set up so that we continue to create the proliferation of wealth in certain areas and everybody else gets left behind. And so we need change. We need, these are, these are all fundamental threats to our democracy. It's why I'm endorsed by End Citizens United because we do need to overturn Citizens United. We need, you know, publicly financed campaigns. We need to make it so that regular people can run for office because frankly, there are just, there's, there's a level of becoming out of touch that I think we see in politicians when they, they don't or have never had to work for a living or they don't or have never interacted with regular people who are struggling. I, I feel incredibly lucky that my worldview is formed by the clients that I've served working in nonprofits for over 20 years. And I, I've met incredible people who, who just want to, they want to raise a family. They want to work one job, not three in order to put food on their table. And they want to, they want to go and get an education, but not leave drowning in debt. Seems pretty simple. 
Yeah, and I, that's kind of where I was going with the question about the majority, because it does seem like we have a very insular system where it's not particularly representative of the demographics of the country. Uh, and so a lot of the people in Congress, whether it's coming from wealth or just certain circumstances, uh, and then the way that the money is distributed, it doesn't seem to be set up to inherently try to help everybody. And like in your case, it doesn't seem to be like you have to make a conscious effort to act a certain way about who you're taking money from. Or in your case, you know, uh, you know, you're not like a, a billionaire's child running for office. You know, it's somebody who, you know, you have to build it from the ground up. And so, I mean, that, that seems to be like, uh, you know, the way that we get closer to actual representation. And it seems like that maybe is a missing key in a lot of the, the people who are in Congress and the, the dissatisfaction with Congress is a lot of the people who go there aren't the average citizen, don't have the concerns of the average citizen. And so the next question, I guess, is like, how do you how do you keep those once you get to Congress? And I guess you sort of you have to you have to keep talking to people, you have to surround yourself with the right people. Right. I think that that's really important. And that's something that I have pledged to do in a number of different ways, because I think you know, what we see is that it's easy for members of Congress to become insulated. Although, you know, I, I had the honor of meeting a number of people in Congress right now, and they're, they're, we're starting to see the, the, the makeup changing where more and more people uh, are, are running without taking corporate PAC money, with, who are running on platforms to challenge these threats to our democracy, who want to see people have health care, who want to see a livable wage. These, it's just, it's so funny because these seem, this all seems like a very low bar. <laughs> like, Agreed, you know, we yeah. want to, we want to protect the planet. I mean, and actually a lot of these things used to be Republican core values, right? Like lowering the debt, uh, family values, protecting the environment, uh, things that, that now they, the Republicans like to frame as radical. It's not so radical to be able to just work a job and then come home and feed your family. So I talked to Don Bacon in the spring about changing campaign finance. And I don't think it actually made it to air, but uh, we were talking about the way that a way that you could change it would be, you know, um, I'm blanking on the word right now, but where the, the money gets distributed among the candidates uh, from the government itself. He doesn't he believes that there's something inherently wrong or immoral about uh, your taxpayer money potentially going to candidates that you vehemently disagree with. So like. I don't know. An easy example might be, uh, you know, some some candidate who's been accused of something bad, like maybe somebody doesn't want their money to go to Chris Janicek, for example. Uh, in a case like that, I guess I'm curious. I mean, do you see that? Is that a moral issue that should be a big concern compared with some of the the concerns with uh, whether it's corruption or just, you know, the, the inherent biases of where you get money from from a corporate pack? Uh, you know, is it a better system inherently to switch to something where every candidate gets a certain amount of money and then there's taxpayer money in that pool? Well, let's let's look at right now where our taxpayer dollars are going when it comes to the president of the United States and his hobbies. How much are we spending for him to play golf? How much did we spend so that Melania could hang out back in New York prior, you know, right when he got elected? Like, you know, <laughs> taxpayer dollars are going for a lot of things that I certainly don't agree with. And I think that the majority of Americans don't agree with, but I think that we can get to a fair system of balanced campaigns. I don't, I don't think most people like the idea that 
a, a congressperson is running for two years for Congress. I don't think most people want to see all those ads splattered on the TV. I don't think people want all this mail coming to their house with pictures of their favorite or least favorite politician. <laughs> um, I, I think people are tired. I, I, you know, I talk to people a lot who are tired of, of the system because they get called by candidates for money all the time. I think that we just, this is again, one of those ways where we come together and we come up with a system that the majority of people like, and we change it so that there's actual representation for Americans. What are some issues that we didn't talk about here that you want to make sure get referenced before we end this? Well, we, we touched on this, but keep in mind, early voting in Nebraska starts September 28th. And so some people ask me, you know, why do you have TV ads up so early? Well, that's election day, right? I mean, of course, the ultimate election day is November 3rd, but early voting starts pretty soon. And, and I think people have some fears about that. We, there's a lot of information on social media about how to vote, how to vote by mail. If you're worried about the postal service, which at this point we should probably all be worried about the postal service just in terms of its longevity. But um, we, there, there, there are simple ways for people to vote and there are drop boxes around each part of the district and you can go to the election commission and bring your ballot. And there are campaigns like ours that will help you out. So we just wanna make sure that people are voting, that they understand the importance of voting in this election. There are a number of great candidates running down the ballot from where I am. And uh, it's, it's an exciting election. It's also the most important election of our lifetimes and we need everybody to vote. And I, and I mean everybody, I mean, this is, we're, we're seeing so many tactics coming out of the current administration to suppress voting on, you know, and, and, and frankly, the, the president himself has admitted that if we have vote by mail, and if we encourage people to vote, he's going to lose. So if there's if there's no other <laughs> incentive for you to do it, just, just do it for that. But but frankly, we just we really need to encourage more people, young people, people of color, people who traditionally have have you know sat out because they feel like their vote doesn't count. I, I in in 2018, my vote was decided by 4,945 votes in our district. Um, my, my, my election was decided that way. Uh, we had a local, uh, you know, county commissioner race here that was decided by three votes. Your vote counts, especially for these down ballot races. And, and we have a unique opportunity right now in the second district because there are a lot of eyes on the district saying that we could be that deciding electoral college vote for Joe Biden. So we need to make sure that both he and I get elected. I would be the first woman elected to serve the district, proud to be that. And, and we have that ability to give the Electoral College vote to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, but everybody needs to vote. Well, I think that's a good note for us to end on. And I'm really excited to have gotten to talk to you for a third time here. So thank you for doing this. Thanks, Tom. Anytime. You take care. You too. That was Kara Eastman, who is currently running to represent Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District in the House of Representatives. This was the third time we spoke. You can find previous conversations with her on whatever podcast app you listen to. You can also subscribe to Riverside Chats wherever you like, and we ask that you leave us a review. 
Upcoming shows include reruns of some of our favorite political episodes that are especially relevant as we get closer to Election Day. So that includes conversations with Don Bacon and Kate Bowles, as well as others. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarbon Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I am Tom Noblock. <laughs>